Welcome back to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have James Williams. He's a thinker in the ethics of design. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have James Williams. He previously worked at Google and is now working on a doctorate in ethics in design at Oxford. Uh, you're also an expert square dancer, James. <laughs> that's the rumor, but that's not true. <laughs> not true at all. What would it take to be an expert square dancer? Is that is that? I guess I guess it would take a lot of square dancing experience. I would assume so. I mean, it doesn't seem like the thing, sort of thing you could just walk up and you know, be an expert at. But and hmm. we're. We were talking earlier. There's there there are square dancers in Oxford, but I don't understand why that that would be the case. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know when people celebrate American Thanksgiving here in Oxford, uh, sometimes they'll pair it with a kind of activity that they just kind of associate with America. And square dancing is is one that there's a dinner tomorrow night that and they're square dancing after it. So, uh, yeah, I maybe I'll have to learn how to square dance before then. I don't know. You'd think I, I would know being from Texas, but yeah, I mean, this is this is actually a, the, in terms of in terms of uh, assessing the future and where culturally where we're headed. I think this is far more interesting than anything we could probably discuss the, the idea of square dancing in Oxford. But let's yeah, talk... I mean, people talk about the Internet of Things. I think <laughs> the, the Internet of Square Dancing is probably the next paradigm that we've you know, been shift. able to spread yeah. square dancing from from. Uh, I guess that's really my yeah my mission in life is just yeah <laughs> just so I can just get as many people as I can square dancing. The, the primary the primary representative. <laughs> Square dancing in England. I think Benny Hill did some. Okay, so uh, so you you worked at a, you worked at Google, and did, is, yeah. and the and the trajectory here uh, really seems interesting because you worked at Google in in ad sale like ad analytics right or uh, or user analytics. Yeah, it was kind of the global business uh, side of things. I was mostly focused on search uh, advertising for the first bit, and then. Did some in initiatives later on relating to kind of digital measurement, web analytics. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I don't want to I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you've kind of uh, the scales have been have fallen from your eyes, and you've you've you're coming back around, <laughs> and you're saying that this stuff is bad. Basically, uh, basically, social media and some of the stuff that you specifically worked on is actually dangerous to democracy, our health, our brains, etc. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, information technologies have, have given us a lot of really great benefits. And I'm very, you know, pro-technology. I'm by no means a Luddite or anything like that. But I mean, I, I had this kind of realization when I was still working at Google. It was, you know, the received wisdom is always kind of, you know, more information is better. You know, more technology is better. You know, there are all these things that it can help us do. And, but I had this kind of realization that, you know, there was more devices, more technology, more information around me than there had ever been before. But um, it felt kind of harder to do the things I wanted to do with myself on this uh, this deeper level. And it, it was more than just kind of, you know, distraction in the way we normally talk about it. It was, it was almost like something was kind of decohering <laughs> at a more existential uh -huh. level. And so, um, you know, so I, I basically, yeah, so I, I came over here to, uh, to Oxford to a place called the Oxford Internet Institute, which is unique at Oxford because it's a really multidisciplinary group of people studying kind of uh, the design, the implications of, of the internet. And 
Um, and so I've I've been looking at uh, kind of the ethics and philosophy of uh, as I've kind of framed it now, like kind of attention and persuasion uh, in technology design. And and I think one there's a lot of ways to kind of describe the the nature of this problem, uh, but one way that I come at it is, is sort of with Herbert Simon's observation from uh, the 1970s when he says that, um, he said that inf when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. Mm -hmm. And so most of human history, you know, we've lived in environments where the information has, has been scarce. And the whole point of an information technology was to, to kind of break down the barriers between us and the information. Um, and it did that really well and so well that, you know, the problem is the inverse now. The problem is sort of the deluge of information, especially now that then we carry the devices with us throughout the day. It's, you know, it's the first thing we look at when we wake up, last thing we look at when we go to sleep. So we kind of have this, this force in our lives now that's sort of this continual fire hose of potential <laughs> informational rewards. Um, and that creates very new types of challenges for, uh, for self-regulation, for, um, you know, you know, guiding our lives in the direction we want to go, not the direction that these different forces want to go. And so I think that a lot of our societal systems haven't really started to take into account this, the depth uh, and the nature of this shift from kind of information scarcity to information abundance and then and thereby attention scarcity. And I think a lot of the ethical problems that, um, you know, technology ethicists have looked at have tended to be framed in informational terms. So questions of the management of information uh, like censorship, privacy, surveillance, this sort of thing. Uh, so w what I've have been kind of trying to call for is, uh, you know, to tip the scales a little bit back in the other direction and really start to give more uh, attention to these attentional ethical challenges. Um, and I think that, you know, the, given then that the, 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 kind of the dominant business model on the internet right now is essentially a kind of like hyper industrialized, hyper targeted persuasion. Um, I think that it, this is, um, you know, certainly the right moment. And I think the political events of last year have brought a lot of these mechanisms that were already there and happening in the advertising industry into the foreground. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been really heartened by the the sorts of conversations that have been happening lately uh, that bring attention to this, you know, this attention economy, this kind of total environment where, uh, you know, all of these forces are just trying to ping our attention 24-7. Okay, so there's loads to unpack here. So this is fascinating. So you you felt a you felt sort of a decoupling from like I I think almost everybody who's online like I've been I've been sitting online uh, for let's say twenty let's say twenty years like quite literally I, I used to run Gizmodo I used to write twenty eight posts a day I was posting mm -hmm. stuff pushing stuff out online uh, for for twenty years two decades that that's akin to somebody sitting in I guess the AP newsroom back in the back in the seventies and typing into a green screen, uh, first a typewriter and then a green screen for 20 years. But I don't think the same sort of human disconnection uh, happened back then when you, were, when you were tapping away on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. What is it about what we are doing right now that is so uh, mentally damaging, I guess? Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, there's certainly been kind of, you know, attention economies in the past and previous forms of media. I think one way to look at it is um, I think there's a question of the like the ubiquity of of these forces in our life. So, you know, you know, prior to digital media, you know, you could uh, you had to sit down at the computer in order to, to, you know, engage with it or, you know, sit down at the television, you know, sit down, and listen to the radio. So there was a kind of physical 
boundedness around particular context context of media use. Um, but now, sort of, you know, having instant access to, you know, all the information in the world, everybody in the world, from this thing in my pocket, um, I think there's a way in which kind of our lives have been just enveloped by by the this sort of informational environment now and so we don't go to it it just comes to us and it's always with us so i think the ubiquity is one piece of it um i think that sort of the degree of persuasive power that design can have now is another one um part of this is you know the infrastructure of, of measurement and analytics that uh, the internet has enabled but the other i think is the way we that you know the advertising industry and design generally has become more um more I guess, uh, effective at kind of applying the knowledge of psychology that we've been given, you know, over the past, you know, 40 to 50 years, mm -hmm. kind of a better understanding of our, our non-rational psychology, these, you know, psychological biases, these kind of buttons in our brains that, you know, with just the right design elements, you know, can be pushed in a certain way. So I think there's a, a question of the persuasive power as well. And then I think the third thing with the internet specifically is just the sort of the global scale of the competition. Um, because, you know, in the past, it might have been you were competing against someone in your your town or your country for the attention of people. But, you know, now it's it's a truly a global a global uh, phenomenon. So the so these these tools and your and this is interesting that you're so basically non-rational psychology. How can how are companies, uh, I guess, like Google uh, basically taking advantage of the fact that, yes, we are non-rational people and we are using uh we are using these tools irrationally and mm -hmm. how can how can you how can you basically uh plan a business against irrationality well i think it's important probably to say at the beginning there that the the, the, the irrationality the non-rationality it's not in itself bad um you know it, it it can be used toward good ends so it's like why stop signs are red right we notice them or we're more likely to notice them and this contributes to the value of safety etc um but I mean, you know, one, the, one of the first books on web usability that I remember is uh, this book called Don't Make Me Think. Um, and so it's, it's, I mean, it's this idea that like so much of what we do day to day, moment to moment uh, is not conscious. It's this automatic, you know, we're sort of on autopilot with certain things. And that's great because it frees us up to give our conscious effort, our attention to other things that need it. So I think there are certainly ways that companies can use this toward our own goals, you know, in our own interests. I think um, I think the problem is just uh, you know that these these cognitive biases, these these psychological mechanisms are being uh, kind of engaged with in a way that then uh, guides us in a direction that is sort of not the direction we want to go, right? So it distracts us from you know what we want to do right now today, but you know over time that adds up and it becomes distracting us from you know the person we wanted to be over time. So the creation of habits um, and the kind of uh, kind of hacking our reward pathway and creating new habits on the part of users is um, is one big uh, you know big place you see the kind of this this uh, these mechanisms being used explicitly. For instance, the, the you know this book Hooked and kind of uh, mm -hmm. just how to design products that are that are habit forming by design. Um, and so there are good ways of using that, and then there are there are ways of using that that run contrary to users' interests. And I think just the business models that are now kind of the default ones where the goal is just to get people's attention and to keep them using the product, using the app, clicking, scrolling, et cetera. Uh, these kind of petty engagement metrics become kind of the highest metrics that they're optimizing for. Uh, I think inevitably, inevitably then that takes us down a road that is 
contrary to our own goals and interests. So would you wager that the world that exists now, the online, the online reaction to this is essentially all of this, um, uh, I guess it's all this, uh, this rah, rah, get your hustle working. Here's how to break five habits of uh, the highly tens, highly, highly successful habits of 10 CEOs, etc. Is all of this content that we're seeing a direct reaction to the fact that our habit systems have been overrun by other organizations? You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there, there's a lot happening culturally in the background too. So, I mean, I think one other piece of this is, you know, for most of human history, we've had uh, these systems, whether the kind of religious or cultural systems that, you know, we inherited and would live in and had been iterated over centuries, if not millennia, that were essentially kind of there to, you know, guide our life or design our life, even in the kind of in the direction of certain values. And I think, you know, the kind of the advent of secularism for all of the benefits that it's it's given us. Um, I think it did take away these kind of um, these kind of regulatory structures in our world that we had kind of leaned on and it, it pushed the responsibility for that self-regulation back on us. And so then I think on top of that, then you have um, like uh, like these technological systems and that uh, similarly, you know, we can't rely on the physical constraints of the environment to uh, to help us regulate our media use, our information intake, it's sort of always with us. So it pushes even more of this regulatory responsibility onto us. And so I think certainly you could read kind of like, uh, you know, self-help books or mm -hmm. uh, kind of info, like content that tries to, uh, you know, give us these quick tips for, you know, uh, you know, being more efficient, more effective in our lives. You could read these as, as one type of response to this general kind of crisis of self-regulation. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It's like, uh, it's like the the diet industry uh, grew up over uh, the, our inability to self-regulate, and at this point, basically, this is kind of like an information diet kind of mm -hmm. thing, where they tell you not to read the internet for whatever x amount of time during the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Matthew Crawford, who's a professor, I think, at University of Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, has a great book on some of these issues called "The World Beyond Your Head," uh, coming from a philosophical perspective. But I think he, in that book, he uh, he calls distraction the the mental equivalent of obesity. <laughs> so I must be a, I must be huge. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, we're we're looking at a, we're looking at ethics and design. How how do how does Facebook and Twitter fix itself? I think I personally think both of these places are are cesspools of of uh, just garbage <laughs> content. So you can correct me, and you can also uh, tell me how these guys can help themselves, uh, especially in, in light of what happened in the, re in the election. I don't think the, I don't think their import is as, as vast as everybody assumes it is, but I think, I think it still has some effect, but how can they fix themselves? Yeah. So I think, I think one question that I, I feel like could be getting asked more, uh, in this moment where it seems like there's an opportunity to advance these conversations, uh, is a question of like, what are these what are these systems? What are these technologies fundamentally for? Like, what what is the value that that they exist to bring into our lives? So, you know, they've got these mission statements, which are great, and marketing claims, which are great. And but then you look at you know what is actually on the dashboards, and you know what they're designing our lives toward, and it tends to be these um, these engagement metrics, like you know just getting people to look and click and tap and scroll. Um, and so I think that you know on one level there, I think 
you know, part of the realization just needs to be that there is a huge gap between <laughs> sort of what it, uh, the systems are claimed to be for and what is, they're actually being designed for. Um, but I think there's a deeper level of kind of, uh, uh, of um, there's, a, there's a kind of existential design question almost about like, well, what, you know, like, why are we using, why are we using these things in the first place? Um, and so to me, I think it's about getting back to, to the purpose of these systems and what we want them to do for us. And to me, I think that's, that's in a way, the essential ethical question. Um, so, you know, I think there are certainly like kind of, uh, you know, band-aids that can be put on the situation in the near term. But, but to me, I think align the question of like, how do we align the business models of these organizations with the sort of value promoting the kind of value they say they want to promote in, in human life. To me, that's the essential question. And I don't see a way really to do that without um, getting rid of most of what we currently call advertising. Mm -hmm. At least there's the sort of advertising that um, incentivizes just the, the, the mere grabbing and ex exploitation of people's attention. I think there's a sort of advertising that is about not grabbing attention, but like supporting people's intentions, supporting their goals. Um, and I think that's, that's okay, but I think you know most of advertising then is this other sort, uh, this other type that is, um, it's just about grabbing people's attention. So I think, I think there's a kind of, there is a kind of uh, existential question we need to ask about. You know, what what do we want advertising to do for us? You know, in an era of information abundance, what is it for? Uh, because the, the justification had always been in the past. It, it, you know, advertising gives us information that helps us make a better purchasing decision, mm -hmm. but. Uh, it seems to me in, in, a, in an era of information abundance, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it has to, it needs a different justification, uh, and we haven't required that it give one, but I think we need to actually do that. What happens, at, what happens at Google, for example, when, when that requirement, and first off, how are we going to convince Google to take up that requirement? But what happens when that requirement comes, uh, comes to the fore? What, what does advertising look like after that? Well, I think. You know, I, th I think it looks like advertising that um, that understands, you know, what matters to us, uh, what our values are, what our, our goals are, the things we want to do with ourselves. Uh, you know, I think a metaphor I use sometimes is, 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 you know, these tools, these technologies, in a way, ought to be kind of like a GPS for our lives because, uh, you know, they already are that. I think, um, you know, and if you had a GPS and you put in a a destination and it took you to a destination on the other side of town and it kept doing that, you know, you wouldn't keep using that. You would mm -hmm. break it or throw it out the window of your car. But so it's like, we wouldn't put up with that in that environment. So why should we put up with it in, you know, the informational environment? So, so I think it would look kind of like, uh, you know, a GPS, you know, we, for our lives in a way where, uh, you know, instead of taking, capturing our attention, exploiting our attention, it's, it would be a kind of sponsored support toward our tasks, toward our goals. Uh, so there would be a kind of alignment between uh, the interests of, you know, the platform, the user and and the advertiser. Uh, and I think uh, where it's just about grabbing attention, there's just a huge misalignment of those. Hmm. So the so the, the simple idea of just uh, pay, making us pay attention to a picture or a or product is is going away. That's that sounds that sounds like a good thing. How do we fix? Uh, how do we fix news? How do we fix uh, the the spread of quote unquote fake news, etc.? I mean, I think it would be a similar fix. Um, I mean, I I think fake news is kind of a problem, but I don't think it's it's the problem. I think that you know it's a symptom of this uh, this deeper uh, problem with the attention economy, where you know it, it, the whole goal is just to grab our attention and keep it. 
Um, so, so I think if we can fix that, I think then, you know, there will, I think there will always be people lying. There will always be misinformation. Um, but I think, you know, in this kind of, uh, acute form, I think, you know, we wouldn't have as much of it in this way if, if we had a system that, that was actually designed toward, uh, you know, informing people, educating people. And those were the actual design goals that design was optimizing for. Mm -hmm. Hmm. What does uh, what does media look like in, in twenty years if 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 you if you get a if everything that you want done happens? Uh, hmm. I mean, I think yeah, it's hard to even sometimes it's hard to remember what it was like ten years ago. You know, even before mobile phones. So I think it's I think it's really hard to you know predict where things are going to go. I mean, I think one one you know trajectory in general that we can see is, is kind of the increased automation of things and kind of you know discussions of kind of ai machine learning kind of automating our our lower level tasks but then doing that at higher and higher levels so you know now if if uh, if the computer can um find me a flight that i'm looking for uh you know and then maybe the next level up in terms of the task or goals that it's automating is it tells me uh, you know, which flight I ought to take given my preferences or things like that. So things that I already do cognitively, informationally, it kind of takes care of those. So, so I think if, if this is true and this trajectory is about, you know, automating the higher order, uh, kind of bits of our, our, um, you know, our day-to-day -day tasks, um, then I think, you know, it's even more important that, uh, that the media understands what we care about and what we want to do with ourselves, what we want to do with our lives. And so, um, you know, assuming there was some mechanism that could sort of enable that kind of uh, awareness of what matters to us on the part of media, um, I think then this could be a really great thing. I think there is, you know, some people are starting to talk about um, this question of algorithmic uh, auditing, algorithmic transparency. Um, and it, it, so, it, you know, it's like, how do we know the why a uh, algorithm is making one decision or another. Um, and I think we're in a really interesting and important moment to have these conversations right now because we're still at the place where, you know, we're, it's like kind of screen-based, you know, we can see the design. It's not happening at some lower level of, of automation. And so I think, um, I think it's easier to have these conversations about something you can see and point to <laughs> than it is uh, something that you may not even have access to and might be, you know, hard to get at. So, so I think that we're in a moment right now where if we can kind of figure out these these issues of you know basically how can kind of we realign the design of technology uh, towards the sort of the true goals and values that people have the aims the values of society um then you know i think then when we kind of in it, the more and more that gets automated i think the more uh it it will be able to help us actually do those things but i think there needs to be some kind of process of reflection in there, some, some mechanism that, that lets the media understand what we care about. And I think a lot now, a lot, a lot of that happens via inference. It's like, okay, you went to these few websites, you use this app, we scraped this thing from your email or whatever. So we infer that you are interested in this, or this is relevant to you. Mm -hmm. um, I think this notion of relevance has really been diluted, <laughs> I think, beyond <laughs> any, any real meaning. So I think, um, I think we need to kind of play hit a reset button on that. And, and start with, you know, these deep, thick and, and often hard questions of, of, you know, what do people care about? And um, when does it make sense to just ask them directly uh, versus kind of 
you know, infer. Interesting. Yeah, I want my brain back. So let's uh, let's try to figure this out. <laughs> uh, where can people find out uh, what you're working on? Uh, so my personal website is williams.nu. Uh, you can go to that. Um, I'm also I also work with the Time Well Spent uh, Project, which uh, the, the website for that is timewellspent.io. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have a web page on the Oxford website. So if you just Googled James Williams Oxford, you could probably find it. All right. Very, very cool. All right. Well, enjoy your square dancing. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> right. Thank you for joining us on Technotopia. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus.